All right, that uh, uh, leads us to our sermon that can be found on the back of the bulletin. This is 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 7. Uh, Paul has been talking to the Corinthians, and he's talking about how he uh, regards himself as he relates to them. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, that each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The word of the Lord. Well, if you listen to the pundits of the world and turn on the news and go into the various places of the internet, they're always talking about the question, how do we fix the problems of the world? No one ever says, hey, everything's great with the world, notice. We all have an intuitive understanding that something is broken with the world. The question is, what is it and how do we fix it? And it seems in our modern Western civilization, it falls into three buckets of how we are to fix the problems of the world. The first is political, that we have a political problem when we get the right people in power, in the right positions of power, all will take care of itself. The other focus is educational, that uh, the problem is that people aren't educated enough. Um, If we do a better job educating our children, we will have a more just and equitable uh, society. The third bucket is psychological. Psychological and specifically dealing with the issue of self-esteem. The problem in America is low self-esteem. So whenever there's, for instance, a school shooting What happens? They instantly begin to do a personality profile on whoever the shooter was. And lo and behold, you discover that he was bullied, that he was a loner, that really the issue was that he had low self-esteem, that if we fix the problem of self-esteem, everything will take care of itself. Now, I want to talk about this psychological piece. It's interesting, if you look at most of human history and most of the rest of the world, the world says the, pr- the problem with us is not low self-esteem, but rather high self-esteem. Pride or hubris, which is the Greek word. Hubris actually translates to violence or outrage. It's a not caring about other people. In other words, it's high self-esteem that is the problem. And in fact, the empirical evidence seems to point that, yes, indeed, it's not a problem of l- most of the problems of the world are, dealing, are because of low self-esteem, but rather too high of self-esteem. Well, what does that have to do with this passage? 
It has to do with this passage in that the Corinthians have a problem. And their problem is high self-esteem. They're puffed up. They think too highly of themselves. And as a result, they're looking down on their fellow brother and sister in Christ. They have separated into these divisions, these different camps in which they follow their particular leader. And they have a lack of empathy toward one another. Well, we all are affected by self-esteem issues, whether too high or too low. So what is the right answer, to have high self-esteem or to have low self-esteem? In other words, if the Corinthians were to have low self-esteem, would they do better in terms of their love for one another than the problem they have now because of high self-esteem? And the answer is no. Because the solution to the Corinthians and for us is not to have high self-esteem or low self-esteem. The correct answer is to have no self-esteem. What does that mean? See, the gospel frees us not to think more highly of ourselves or to think less of ourselves. It frees us to think of ourselves less. See, the gospel frees us to value ourselves and others rightly because we get our value from the Lord, not from the world or from ourselves. See, in the end, Jesus' verdict is the only one that can truly set us free from the condemnation of the world and the condemnation of ourselves. So we must look to Jesus for the verdict, not the world. Well, how do we do that? We're going to look at three particular points. I'm going to take you into two different courtrooms. The first is the courtroom of the world. And then we're going to look at the courtroom of the gospel and how that differs from the world. And then finally, we're going to look at the result of the verdict, how the gospel frees us from the courtroom of the world. So let's begin with the courtroom of the world. As I've said, the Corinthians have divided into these factions. They've attached themselves to different leaders, whether Paul or Cephas or Apollos, in an effort to gain status, to build their pedigree, their resume. And as a result, there are these factions and divisions. And Paul is speaking to this problem, and he talks about them, about uh, himself and Apollos. And he says, this is how one should regard us, verse 1 as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. First, Paul calls himself a servant of Christ. Uh, the, the, The actual translation is the chief household slave. Paul is calling himself a slave who has been given a responsibility, that I've been given the responsibility of stewarding to you the mystery of God. I have been given the message of the gospel to bring to you. That's why I'm here. And he goes on, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. In other words, yes, we belong to you, but we must answer to God. In other words, the motivation for why we are doing what we are doing, Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, is we're not doing it for the Corinthians, for you alone, Or are we doing it for ourselves to get prestige? 
but rather for God. Notice what he says in verse 3, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Paul is contrasting himself with the Corinthians. The Corinthians very much care what everyone else in the church and in the world thinks about them, but Paul does not. Notice what he says in verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos. In other words, I've given myself as an example for you to look at that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another. He's saying, we are an example. Follow us so you will not live this puffed up life in favor of one another. And in fact, the NIV says that you uh, may not go beyond what is written, that you will not take pride in one man over against another. So this word pride is translated physu, which means puffed up, swollen, painful. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about the ego of the Corinthians, that the Corinthians right now have a puffed up, swollen ego regarding who they are, and it's affecting how they see everyone else. Well, we're all kind of familiar with the concept of the ego, right? What is the ego? The ego is essentially who I am, my identity. It's the center of my self-esteem. In fact, I was doing some research on the almighty seeing eye, and I came across this article in Psychology Today. What is the ego? And it says that the ego is the part of you that is engaged in self-justification. So the ego is that part of you that is seeking to validate your existence, to prove in some way to the world or to yourself that you are worthy of taking up space on planet Earth. Now, the scriptures tell us that the ego is born fallen. In other words, from the time that we are born, as we begin to live our life, we start seeking our value and our meaning anywhere but in God. And if we don't seek it in God, we must seek it from the world, right? The Corinthians are seeking to fill their ego from the world's opinion of them. Now, here are some things we know about the human ego in its natural state. The first is that the human ego is empty. It's never full. How do we know that? I mean, just look at the music and the movies that are put out in our culture. Think about the Rolling Stones, right? I can't get no satisfaction. But I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I've tried, but I can't get any satisfaction. Or my favorite philosopher, Bruce Springsteen, right? Everybody's got a hungry heart. How about in the movies? Think of Jerry Maguire saying to Dorothy, you complete me, right? You're that missing piece that I've been looking for all my life that will finally fill up the emptiness in my heart, in my ego. The human ego is empty. But the human ego is also painful. Paul talks about it being swollen and puffed up 
Think of when you have inflammation in your body, whether it's a, an organ or something like that. It's swollen. When you touch it, it, it hurts. The human ego is fragile, isn't it? It's hard for us to get through the day without feeling ignored or snubbed or insulted or getting down on ourselves. Our egos are so sensitive, right? We're up and we're having a great day and then somebody says one thing to us and all of a sudden we go from the highest heights to the lowest lows. Our egos are easily hurt. So our egos are empty, they're painful, and they're busy. We're constantly thinking about ourselves, right? How does this situation affect me? How do others think of me? Right? When I walk into a party and I'm assessing everything as it relates to me. See, the Corinthians are constantly, and we all, without Christ, are constantly trying to fill our emptiness and insulate from our pain. And so how does the world and how do the Corinthians try to fill our ego? It's with pride. Notice what Paul says, that we're, I'm telling you the truth, the truth of the gospel, so you will not be puffed up, so that you will not have this pride in one man over another. See, the way that we try to fill our egos with, is with pride, but not the good kind of pride. I'm talking about the worldly pride, the pride that comes with comparing ourselves to one another. See, pride is by its nature competitive. C.S. Lewis put it this way when he was talking about pride. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If someone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. See, this leads to a swollen but a not satisfied ego because you can't really enjoy your accomplishments, right? Somebody comes along who's richer or smarter or whatever, and all the pleasure goes away. But Paul says something very, very interesting when relating to himself as opposed to the Corinthians. He says, I don't care if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Notice that he's comparing the Corinthians to a court. I thought the Corinthians were a church, right? What is a court? A court is a place where judgment is rendered. And there are all sorts of courtrooms on planet Earth, aren't they? And is the judgment of a court that's not a court of law valid? Absolutely, if you let it be. See, the world is a courtroom, and we are taught and trained from a very young age to listen to its judgment of us. Well, that's ridiculous. Well, is it? Women, is there a standard out there of what beautiful is and what it is not? 
And who is it that keeps this standard, right? Is it Vogue, Hollywood, Ulta, social media? And you feel this pressure to evaluate yourself against the standard that's been given. It was Charles Revson, the founder of Revlon, that said, I don't sell cosmetics, I sell hope. In other words, I sell the hope that you can, by using my product, meet the standard of the world. But you see, unless you are the, the less than 1% that won the genetic lottery, you are not going to win that comparison. But there is something that you can do, right? I can compare myself to those who are around me. But the problem is I'm up and I'm down compared to what room I'm in and how I'm looking and feeling that day. It's a courtroom of the world that is constantly leading us to swollen and painful egos. I don't know if you've heard of what was called the Fiji experiment. It relates to diets and calorie counting and eating disorders. See, all of these words were foreign to the Viti Levu residents. Viti Levu is the main island uh, on the island of Fiji. And pre-1995, Fiji was immune to the effects of mass media because they didn't have television. But in 1995, they got television. And sociologists were very, very interested to see how this was going to affect the people watching it. And so they created the Fiji experiment. They went in and they studied teenage girls, age 17 on average, to see if the introduction of television would lead to disordered eating. See, before television in Fiji, the plump, curvaceous, wholesome look was what was considered attractive. In fact, when weight was lost, it was a cause for concern, not for euphoric delight. Eating disorders were unheard of in Fiji. And so from 1995 to 1998, they did this study to uh, look at their uh, values and beliefs. They surveyed 63 Fijian secondary school girls in 1995. And then in 1998, they surveyed 65 other girls who were from the same schools, uh, same height, same weight, same age. And this is what they discovered. In 1998, 15% of girls said that they had induced vomiting to control their weight compared to 3% in 1995. In 1998, 29% scored highly on an eating disorder risk test compared to 13% in 1995. In 1998, 83% said that they felt TV had influenced their friends or themselves to be more conscious about their body shape or weight. And it goes on and on. 30% said the television characters were their role models concerning career and work issues. In 1998, heavy TV users were 50% more likely to describe themselves as fat and 30% more likely than light TV viewers to go on a diet. The Fijian experiment. See, my friends, the courtroom of the world is always in session. And if you are seeking your validation from the world, you will never have peace. 
What instead you will discover is you are a prisoner of other people's opinions of you. And you will spend your life constantly having to justify your existence, living an up and down life. Furthermore, you will live a self-focused, self-centered life that views people as a means to an end, namely your end of feeling good about yourself, which is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. But if that is you, there is hope. There is another courtroom, the courtroom of Christ. Notice what Paul says, with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Paul is living by a different set of rules than the Corinthians. He first says, I have a very, very low opinion of your opinion of me. This word judged actually can be translated as verdict. I have a very, very low opinion of your opinion of me, of your verdict, your stamp of approval. Paul is saying, if you guys think that I'm terrible, so what? But if you think I'm great, so what as well? That's not driving what I do. Now, contemporary psychology would say, that's right, Paul. You don't need to care what other people think. You decide what you think. But notice what Paul goes on to say. He says, I, I don't care if I'm judged by you. I don't even judge myself. He's saying, I have a very, very low opinion of my opinion of me. Now, that's a pretty astounding statement, right? He's saying, I don't care what you think, and I don't care what I think. Now, we need to understand something about Paul. Paul is considered probably the greatest Christian that ever lived. He's responsible for writing 30% of the New Testament. In terms of his intellectual abilities, Paul easily fits into that subset of the greatest minds of Western civilization. But Paul also described himself as the chief of sinners. He said in 1 Timothy 1.15, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Not of who I was the worst, of whom I am the worst. In other words, Paul was so close to the glory of Christ that he was able to see the depths of his depravity, so much to call himself as the chief of all sinners. But notice what Paul does. He does not tie his identity to either of these things, his brilliance and his accomplishments or his sins. See, the solution is not to have a higher self-esteem or to have a lower self-esteem. It's to have no self-esteem, to get my value from another place, not the world or myself. Paul goes on, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So notice what he's not saying. This word acquitted could also be translated justified. See, Paul isn't following that psychological trend that says, look, just 
don't care, okay? Don't sweat the small stuff, right? And it's all small stuff. It's not about, well, don't judge yourself, right? And everything will be okay. Paul is saying, just because I don't judge myself doesn't mean that I have a clear conscience, or excuse me, that I'm justified. I don't know about Hitler, whether when he put his head on his pillow at night, if he felt good about his day's work or not. But whether he did or not, it didn't mean that he was justified. In other words, I, Paul is not saying I can not judge myself and therefore nothing that I do matters. No, he's saying the reason that I don't justify myself is because there is one who renders the only true verdict in life that matters. And that is Jesus Christ. See, there is a verdict for the Christian that is separate from the verdict that others have of me and that I even have of myself. And here is the beauty and the good news of the Christian faith, that the verdict for the Christian is already in. The judgment has already been rendered. If you are a Christian, God has already declared you as righteous, holy, and justified. See, the reason Paul doesn't care about the courtrooms of the world is because Paul has already left the courtroom. The verdict has already been given, and the trial is over. This is radically different than how the Corinthians are living and how the world lives. Because this is the way the world works. The performance that you do leads to the verdict that you get. All the world works like this. In fact, all the major religions of the world work like this, except for Christianity. Right? You want to receive the verdict of belonging to a certain social strata, so you must attend the right school first, get the right job, which leads to getting the right career so you can move into the right neighborhood, so you can belong to the right country club, so that once you do all of these things, you can receive the verdict of belonging to this particular group. If you are a follower of Islam, and I by no means mean to disrespect Islam, but you must live the five pillars of the faith all of your life, you must live a life that conforms to the Koran, and you must do that all your life. And if you do so, then after the performance, you get the verdict. But the gospel is the exact opposite. The world is the performance leads to the verdict, but in the gospel, the verdict leads to performance. Because the moment you became a Christian, the verdict is rendered. God looks at you and has adopted you. This is my child who I am well pleased with. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ's performance, his perfect life that he lived, is imputed to believers. And you and I, if you are a Christian, are justified, which is the same thing as just as if I never sinned. 
as a result, the performance that we can live is now not to gain the verdict. In fact, the performance that Paul is living is different precisely because he is not living to get a verdict. For the ultimate verdict has already been rendered and the trial is over. You know, of all of the enemies that I have had in my life, the worst enemy that I have ever had is me. No other enemies, they take shots at you, right? But they don't really know what can hurt you, right? And you can get away from them. You can hear other voices, other people. But the enemy that's inside of me is with me all the time and knows me all too well. You are probably familiar with this enemy because you have one as well. See, when you were young, each one of us created an image of the person that we would like to be. In fact, the person that we need to be in order to get love and approval. This image was given to us by others, by our observation on how people are rewarded or punished. And slowly it became this standard that we hold ourselves to. But the only problem is we can't measure up to it. We can't measure up to this false self that we are supposed to be. And we try and we try and we can't. So when everyone else has gone home and at the end of the day, you're all alone, there is still that voice speaking to you. You failed. You'll never measure up. You'll never be who you're supposed to be. And I'm here to tell you that that voice is a liar. But the only way to be freed of that voice is the gospel. See, the gospel frees me from the condemnation of the world and even the condemnation of myself. For if you are a Christian, the verdict has already been rendered. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what voice do you hear when you look at yourself? The voice of the world? You better hop too. You better start working harder. Or the voice of yourself? You should do better. You should be better. You have to. Or the voice of your heavenly father? You are my beloved child who I am well pleased with. See, we don't have to keep going back into that courtroom anymore. So stop. When that voice speaks to you, saying you don't measure up, say to it, I don't care what you think. I don't have to listen to you anymore. Your opinion does not matter. The verdict is already in. Look to Christ and relive the gospel. Because Jesus went into that courtroom so we wouldn't have to, right? He was sentenced, condemned, 
crucified, killed for the sins that I should have paid, that the punishment might be paid and I might be free. So fix your eyes on him, not on yourself. Don't let your accomplishments or your sins determine your identity. But rather, fix your eyes on Jesus, the champion of our faith. When you are in despair, look to him. When you are in the midst of self-condemnation, look to him. For Jesus' verdict is the only one that can truly set us free from the condemnation of the world. So look to Jesus for the verdict, not the world. This leads me to my final point. The results are living out of the verdict. Because of the gospel, we are free to live freely. So reevaluate your life. What am I doing? And why am I doing it? Am I still trying to build some sort of resume? Or am I living out of the verdict that's already been pronounced? See, the gospel enables you and me to enjoy things as they are. When I work and I do a good job, I can appreciate it just for what it is. I don't have to be on trial, whether it was good enough or it was bad enough. When I look at myself in the mirror, I don't have to admire and I don't have to cringe. For I am loved and justified by God. The verdict is in. I can now love people for who they are. When I walk into a party, I don't have to be self-conscious. What does everybody think about me? See, I can be about other people, right? The gospel brings the right kind of humility. The gospel humble person is not a self-loving person or a self-hating person. They are a self-forgetful person. Because our ego is not swollen. It's not clamoring. It's more like our elbow or like our toe. I don't have to make it about myself. I can think less about myself. You know, there are two people that walk into a party. One that says, here I am. And another that says, there you are. The gospel allows us to be that second person. You ever see that comedy sketch by Brian Regan, the me monster? It's a great one. I like Brian Regan because he's a clean comedian. The me monster. And it's this person who has no filter, who is showing what everyone thinks about, which is me. And how everything relates to me. And it's all got to be about me. The gospel frees me to be about you. So when somebody criticizes you, it can devastate you no longer, nor do you have to ignore it any longer. You can listen to it and learn from it, for your value is no longer on the line. It was my mentor, Jerry Leachman, that said something to me. He said, you can't love someone until you don't need them. What does he mean? 
means if I'm always doing what I'm doing in order to get something from them, I can't truly love them. What the world is looking for, my friends, is people who have been set free. So no longer enter the courtroom of the world. No longer enter the courtroom of yourself. The judgment has already been rendered. For Jesus' verdict is the only one that can truly set us free from the condemnation of the world. So look to Jesus for the verdict, not the world. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you have freed us from the verdict of the world, from the endless treadmill of performance, of constantly having to wonder, are we good enough, pretty enough, rich enough, whatever enough, for we are enough in you. The verdict was rendered on that cross. Jesus, thank you for paying the price and living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we should have died, that we might be judged based on your life and not ours. Lord, what the world needs is people who have been set free. May your gospel set us free to love you, to love ourselves, and to love the world rightly. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now we continue our worship through our offering. Uh, we have uh, placed offering plates in the foyer. If you wish to give your uh, offering, you may do so after the service. If you are new to Redeemer, don't feel compelled in any way uh, to give. We're just glad you're here with us today. Let me pray for our offering. God, use our offering uh, to build up and strengthen your church as we continue to proclaim this message of grace to the world. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>